I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Molly Harper is the author of more than 30 paranormal and contemporary romance titles, including the Half Moon Hollow series, the Southern Eclectic series, and the Audible exclusive Mystic Bayou series. Molly lives in Michigan with her family, and today we're going to discuss her latest novel, Witches Get Stuff Done. Welcome, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me here. You have been conjuring what I've heard is called big witch energy. I I do have big witch energy. (laughs) Look for those bumper stickers to come. (laughs) Give us the scoop on how witches get stuff done, your new book. Well, it is the Starfall Point series, and it starts with Witches Get Stuff Done, which is now out in audio, print, and ebook. And it is the story of a woman who moves to Michigan and in short order finds out that she is a witch and that she has inherited a house full of haunted antiques. Each antique has its own ghost attached and its own little story. So it's sort of like running through a haunted yard sale, but like in a really fancy haunted mansion. And it was super fun. I wrote it after we moved to Michigan five years ago. And we moved into a very old house. So it was sort of inevitable because we were constantly surrounded by old house noises, which we had never experienced before. And so it very much lent itself to this haunted atmosphere. Book one is out. And then book two, Big Witch Energy, just came out in audio and will come out in print and ebook next year. For our listeners who aren't real familiar with the way publishing works, and publishing is like its own planet. We just it is. we can't describe it. But Big Witch Energy is coming out in audio before it's coming out in the paper book or the ebook. Yes. Why is that? I am fortunate enough to be a recipient of an Audible exclusive original contract, which means that Audible is producing the audio versions of these books, and then outside of six months later, the print and ebook version is being put out by Sourcebooks Casablanca, who are very kind. And they have put out the ebooks and trade paperbacks, and they're out in circulation at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and Target and Walmart and all these wonderful book retailers. So I'm very excited about that. I expect that they know what they're doing. Yes. Yes, they, they do. They're qualified to make those decisions. And I'm being um, uh, handled by very responsible people, which is really nice. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Do I need to ask who voiced the audiobook? Oh, it's Amanda Ronconi. I don't think I can get away with a book without Amanda. So I love her voice. The name Terwilliger is tattooed on my brain and I hear <laughs> it in her voice. So funny. She's so awesome. And then the male characters are narrated by Teddy Hamilton, who is doing a wonderful job. I'll bet they have a good time doing those too. It is really interesting to watch because I get the emails sort of bouncing between the two of them. The accents have to match, the pronunciations Mm -hmm. have to match. And so it's very interesting to watch their process. And they work together really well. When I did my audiobook, I provided a list of words that were purposely misspelled. (laughs) Do you have to do something like that? I always include a pronunciation key because there are some, you know, local city names or just local terms that would not necessarily be known to someone who's from outside the area. And so, yes, there's always a big list. Sometimes it's character names. Sometimes it's locations. So that's always very helpful to them. And and they'll still email me and say, hey, what is this term? Because it's either a Southern thing or a new Northern thing. 
And so I'm constantly confounding them. (laughs) There are things that I didn't know that people outside the South don't know about, like a pie safe. It's like, what do you do with your pies? Like when they're cooling, it's like we put them on the counter like a normal person. I'm like, well, fine. And that was just something that I grew up was just so normal. And if you didn't use it for pies, you were using it for storage of your Pyrex and your Tupperware. Everybody's going to be Googling pie safe now. Yes, it is. It is a cabinet with usually a punched tin front, usually has a decorative design and you put a pie in it so the scene can escape safely and nobody eats your pie. You have written about witches, werewolves, zombies. You've set your books around a Kentucky tourism office, a combination funeral home and bait shop. Is anything off limits? I don't know. I mean, what's your hard stop? Outer space, maybe. (laughs) I don't know that I could write a book on Mars. A lot of times my settings become characters in themselves. So I try to stick to places that I've been before or lived. But yeah, I don't think that there's any limits. Have you lived somewhere where there's a combination funeral home bait shop? Well, here's the thing. In the South, there tends to be, you know, if you have a friend or a cousin that is starting a business, you might say, oh, well, if you're renting this retail space, I would also like to help pay for that retail space, but start my own business. So if you're starting a nail salon, I'm going to start my small motor repair service and we can have them under the same roof. Actually, if you Google this, like there's some really interesting combinations of different businesses. I think video rental store and funeral home was something that came up at one point. Need a distraction. Yeah. If you get the video on your way to the way. Exactly. Everybody processes grief differently. It's something that I kind of noticed and thought would be really entertaining. No, I've never been to a funeral home slash bait shop myself. I was just trying to come up with the most odd combination of businesses. When I'm listening to your books, I will make notes of the imagery. I'm not going to copycat your imagery, but it's definitely inspiration. So let's go back. Okay, you're going to start a brand new series. You're looking for the characters and the setting. Where does it begin? Most of the time, it kind of hits me out of the blue. I carry a lot of notebooks around with me. Hopefully it doesn't happen while I'm driving because then I'm at the red light and I'm just, you know, scribbling things down in a way that scares people. But the idea just hits and you start making notes. And a lot of time it does start with a location such as, you know, living in this old house surrounded by, you know, creeps in the middle of the night. There are floorboards popping. I can't explain them. I'm pretty sure the house is not haunted, but just because I haven't seen anything yet. So it really does just kind of come from being surrounded by something where you can see a story happening. And then a lot of times the ideas for the characters come from like, what would I do if dot, dot, dot. And with Riley, who is the character of the first witch book, what would I do if I was in a completely new location? I knew no one, but everyone acts like they know my whole life story because they know my family. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of a combination of me moving to a place where I literally knew no one coming from a place where everybody did know my whole family's life story and the combination of those two factors. So you really just kind of have to make it sound approachable in a way and then add elements that completely take that fish out of the water. You have to make the character feel like they're completely lost because I think everybody's felt that way. We've all Mm -hmm. been the new kid at school and make that relatable. Do you ever get rolling and you're, you know, 20 pages in, 30 pages in? I don't know any writer who doesn't at some point in the book go, this is crap. This is crazy. What am I doing? But most writers aren't writing about, you know, witches, werewolves, and bait shops. How do you get yourself talked out of a pickle like that? 
I have what I call the 24,000 word mark curse. Every single book I work on at 24,000 words ish. This is lame. I can't believe I started this book. What am I doing? This is the last thing I'll ever write. They'll never buy another book from me. This is the end of my career. I'm usually having like some sort of meltdown at the time. And my family is just listening to me as I am ranting and raving. And they're like, yeah, mom, we go through this every book. Just drink some water, take a nap. You'll be fine. Just go, (laughs) go sit. And you just kind of have to talk yourself through that. It's writer's block. That's all. It's panic because you're past the fun stuff where you're introducing everybody and you've got all the imagery and you're, you know, doing the meat cute and all that, the meat of the story at that point. You just have to take a break, let yourself breathe and then get back to it. And the getting back to it is the scary part because you had your moment and now you have to move on. So generally I take a nap and I drink some water and I go back and tell my family I will actually continue writing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. So just everybody has that. It's so super normal. Don't feel bad. Don't feel guilty. It's a process. You are on book number what? 49, 50-ish, 52, somewhere in there. I mean, if we're counting novellas. 52, that's a lot. Somewhere in there, yeah. You're like way ahead of me. I come from a newspaper background oh, where funny. writing, you know, was an everyday thing and you had to write a lot and you don't get emotionally attached to every word that you write. Mm. So that helped. So is that is that kind of something that has stuck with you when you're oh, writing absolutely. these novels? So you don't nitpick your own writing? Oh, I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't say that. I do nitpick. But, you know, when an entire story thread gets cut or you know some change is suggested by my editor I'm much more likely I think than the average writer to accept that feedback and to incorporate it because I'm used to being told like yeah this isn't working you know you need to reorder this and you know I don't take it personally it's just business it is just business what was your first novel it was a western that will never see the light of day It was really bad. So it wasn't printed? Oh, no, not at all. No. Why is it so bad? Oh, I was not writing what I enjoyed. It was not a story for me. It was what I thought would sell. And so I wrote it and it never saw the light of day. And I didn't write again for a a while. And then I came back to the vampires. So that was when I'd kind of gotten to that point where I was unhappy going into the bookstore and not seeing books that I had, you know, had not written. (laughs) which is not super reasonable to be upset that there were no Molly Harper books on the shelf when I had not written them. So (laughs) I just kind of sat down and wrote my vampire books and made that happen. So what was the first vampire book? It was Nice Girls Don't Have Fangs. And it was about a librarian that is fired from her job and she is drowning her sorrows at the local TGI Fridays type sports memorabilia type restaurant meets a vampire. And then as she's walking home, she is mistaken for a deer and shot by a drunk hunter. And the vampire happens along and turns her to save her life. You have an imagination. I do. And my poor husband came home from work and I had written this like 16 page first chapter of this book. It was like, look what I did. And I explained the whole storyline to him. And he's like, babe, I just came home from work. That's a lot coming at me. (laughs) Just whatever makes you happy. And also, I didn't know you had all this in your head. Oh, he knew. He knew. Oh, he did. (laughs) Yeah. He knew what he was getting into. We've been together for a long time. So, How did you envision your readers when you were writing it? Like, who's going to read this book? Oh, I thought it was going to be people, you know, like me that enjoy a vampire story that makes them laugh. And that's pretty much true, I think, of my readers. And, you know, they've always 
been very accepting and sweet about, you know, being open to werewolves and witches and ghosts and people from, you know, the funeral home slash bait shop. So (laughs) I'm trying to remember the first Molly Harper book I read. Um, Somebody had told me it was the funniest thing that they'd ever read. It was the one where the girl is wearing a swimsuit. Oh, and one last thing. They were right. I was like, oh my God, this is so good. This is so good. And I think I messaged you and said, this is so good. I I just discovered this. And then you said something like, I wrote that so long ago. I'm not sure I remember what you're referring to. But you were very <laughs> gracious. But I was like, oh, sorry. And I went back and looked at the, no, I looked at the date. And I was like, okay, girlfriend, you got to get caught up on your reading. You are so far behind. Last fall, you got a two book deal. Yes. I have sold my first murder mystery. I'm very excited. It's with Berkeley. And the first book for now is titled Jessamine Bricker Has No Plan. And it is about a woman that is sort of pulled into a bachelorette retreat at a mountainside spa in Tennessee. And she's a proposal planner. And she's supposed to be helping plan this woman's proposal. And there's a murder along the way. And there's just all this sort of bridesmaids meets white lotus sort of fun, fun energy. So I, I really enjoyed writing it. And there is a second title that has not been written yet. Is that what we're working on now? No, I'm still doing the revisions on the first, but because <laughs> I don't know what else I've been doing, honestly, no kidding. But no, I'm excited. It's just, it's a new world. I really, I love a good murder. I, I'm all about like those acorn Brit box series. So I just really love, you know, exploring this new side of writing and plotting and it's different, but it's definitely fun. How did you prepare yourself to write this kind of book? I think my whole pop culture consumption has kind of led to writing this book because I love true crime. I love Dateline. I love all those podcasts. I read a lot of mysteries and I watch them almost constantly on television. Maybe my husband should be concerned. I don't know. You know, I really do think that it just kind of shows you it's television shows are even though they're short format, they're really excellent in terms of teaching you the arcs of the plot. And so I really have enjoyed working that out. Does your approach change from book to book? It does. I'm aging and growing, you know, every year. So I think my writing develops over time. But yeah, I think that, you know, the characters demand a certain style sometimes or the story does. And I think that it, you know, requires a different mood every time you approach a new project. With the Starfall Point series, I just kind of kept whimsy and magic and even though you know dealing with some some dark themes in terms of family just wanting to keep this overall sense of like she's walking into a world full of magic and we should feel that we were talking about your voice a little bit before we started how do you maintain that when you're going into different worlds well i don't know if you can tell just from talking to me but the way i talk is pretty much the way that i write i've yes. never known any other way of doing it it's been like this since i was you know a high school newspaper reporter and so that has helped because i think that no matter what project you're approaching whether it's a sci-fi book or a murder mystery or a romance if you have a strong natural voice that's going to come through no matter what project you're doing and i think that What readers and listeners have enjoyed about my stories is if I'm writing about werewolves, if I'm writing about people working in a funeral home slash bait shop, if I'm writing about witches on an island in Michigan, you know that it's going to be a consistent type of story, which is fun, snarky romance. You know, there's going to be hilarious dialogue, I hope, and stories that are going to make you feel good when you're done reading. So I think that keeping that in mind as I'm writing, no matter what I am writing, 
I think that's what keeps that theme going. Your books are like Milky Way bars, <laughs> layered with all <laughs> the good stuff. That is possibly leave you feeling so good. That is possibly the nicest thing anybody's ever said. You are the nougat of romance. I'm putting that on my website. I don't care. <laughs> Does it ever get old? No. Talking to Jacqueline Machard last week. Uh-huh. And she's spoken to some writers who have said, oh, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And I said, oh my gosh, how horrible would that be to think that the book I mean, you're I'm, writing is the sad. last book you're ever going to write? Well, I mean, I, I would be sad mm-hmm. if this was the last book I ever wrote. And but I mean, I get to wear pajama pants to work every day and like survive on a diet of bugles and three musketeer bars. <laughs> like adults don't get to do that. No kidding. <laughs> but no, I love writing. I would do this even if, you know, I could not earn a living at it. I, I would write in my spare time. I don't think it'll ever get old. I'll I'll keep writing as long as people are willing to listen and, and read my books. I get the fatigue. I mean, I've explained the 24,000 word curse to you, but that's mm-hmm. just a, a stop along the way on my process. And I know it's coming and I know that I'll get over it. But yeah, I, I get fatigue, but you have to push through it because it's so worth it. You get up in the morning, you stay in your jammies. <laughs> Obviously. Get your, <laughs> get your bugles. <laughs> Like, do you have a day-to-day, you know, do you do word counts? Do you say, I'm going to get a chapter done? What is your goal when you get up in the morning? Wow. A chapter would be like, that's a lot. I know. That's <laughs> would a be lot. a lot of words. So I try to do a minimum of 2,000 words every day, even if I don't feel like it. Even if they're not awesome, they are on the page. I do more outlines lately, which has been interesting. <laughs> even though I fight against outlining so very hard, I've developed a system that involves a lot of index cards and charting the story before I start. And that's really helped. You know, there are days that I'll wake up and it's like, I really need to get this point of the story done today. Or there are just days like that I feel like, well, today is a sex scene day. And and I'll write (laughs) that. So like I said, 2000 words is minimum. If I get more than that, like I'm really excited for myself. But you just have to build on the story every day because it's those days that you skip. That's when you kind of get sucked into that writer's block zone where the book slows down and it's harder to get back to it. When you outline, what does your outline look like? Like, is it like a true (laughs) outline? And some people have told me lately that they do more like it looks like a first draft. It's got lots of bullets, but it's a first draft. It looks like one of those serial killer murder boards on a detective show because of the index cards. I'll lay it out on my table and it's just like bullet point by bullet point. Every bullet point gets a card. And I use a technique that Alexandra Sokolov taught one year at Romantic Times Convention, where basically you use a movie plot timeline Mm -hmm. to chart out your romance. It really is very effective for me. She has a really great book. I believe it's like screenwriting tricks for writers. It's very effective. So it's just bullet points. Like it is absolutely just like chapter by chapter. You need to hit this point. There needs to be a first act climax, a second act climax. There needs to be a dark night of the soul, which is when you you think nothing's going to work out and our heroine or heroine are going to break up and not get there happily ever after. And then they achieve it. Does that change after you start writing? It depends. A lot of times I'll get into the writing process and realize that my plan was not 
<laughs> not the thing. It was not going to work out. And so I let it go because whatever's best for the story is what's best for the story. Not my plan. Sometimes I'll just have to scrap it. But here lately, I've been able to stick to the outline pretty well. It probably makes it a more efficient process. It, too. It's less frustrating because it used to be I was sort of a pantser and I would get to the end of the second act and just think like, oh, what, what now? <laughs> like, what do I do? How do we get to the end? I know there's a big battle coming. How do I get there? So, <laughs> And what do I pack? What do I pack? Bugles, obviously. <laughs> I read that your novel, How to Flirt with a Naked Werewolf. I say wolf because I'm from Texas. Werewolf. werewolf. I can't. I, you heard right? my accent. You know, I can't judge. <laughs> Came during an ice. I can't really say ice cream storm. It was an ice cream. That storm. would be amazing. <laughs> Came during an ice storm in Kentucky. Yes. When the storm ended and you looked at the notes. How did you decide to move forward? Or did you think that's the most brilliant thing I've ever thought of? I thought maybe that was like the ramblings, you know, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Where it was like, <laughs> all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I mean, it's like, well, this is either going to be great or I'm just nuts. Like, <laughs> I was stuck in a no electricity, no heat house with my six-month-old son and my yeah, four-year-old daughter. had babies. Yeah and, yeah. and like we were with my in-laws because they had a fireplace. And we were making frozen pizza on a grill. I mean, that was like, it was, it was camping. It was extreme camping. I was taking those notes whenever I had a quiet moment, just to kind of keep myself like focused on something that was not about just keeping my kids warm and fed. So when I came out of it, I emailed my agent because I you know finally had power and I was like, Hey, I've got this thing. And fortunately she was like, yeah, that sounds fun, but let's refine that a little bit. So we went through a couple of rounds, you know, before we finally got there, but it was different. It was definitely not the way I would like to get another book idea. <laughs> I would like to keep my power. And not be cooking on a grill. No. I mean, the pizza was fine. It was pizza. Looking back at all you've accomplished, because you have accomplished a lot in both your personal and professional lives, what would you tell your younger self about the journey? It's just business. It's not personal. Because we're writers and because we devote such a large part of our inner life and what we love into writing, I do think that sometimes it can become really personal. This is this thing that you love that you're sharing with people and that it can be difficult to separate that. So it's it's not personal. It's just business. But also like find people that do the same things that you do and love the same things that you love and get out there, meet other writers, find your friends, find your community. Because I did it alone for a couple of years and that was really rough. And I think I would have had an easier go of it, I think, if I had found my community a little earlier. Thank you, Molly. You always make me laugh. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. To learn more, visit mollyharper.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.